All right, what's going on, guys? So welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited for this episode because today we've got Dr. Brent Peterson, and we're going to be talking all about COVID-19, public health policies, and some of the misconceptions around what's going on right now. Um, and essentially, the, the intention of this episode is really just to get an expert opinion on, you know, what the research actually says, and just kind of clarify a couple of points. I know there's a lot of misinformation going on in the media. There's things that I've gotten wrong. There's things a lot of us have gotten wrong. And so Brent is here to, uh, to kind of shine a little bit of light on some of these things. So first off, uh, Brent, thanks so much for jumping on, man. It's, it's really exciting to have you here. Can you just give yourself a little bit of an introduction for some of the people who maybe aren't familiar with you? Yeah, thanks, Daniel. Appreciate that. And uh, thanks for having me on. So, uh, as Daniel mentioned, my name is Brent Peterson. I am an associate professor in the School of Science, Technology, and Health here at Biola University in La Mirada, California. Uh, my doctoral background is more along the physiological, and uh, my doctoral training was more was in cancer and human physiology in that realm. Uh, so I played clinician, I played practitioner, you know, all sorts of, of different things at lab, bench, bench science, and in applied science as well. Um, I have postdoctoral work in public health. And so uh, original goals of that were to work directly with cancer and to be able to extrapolate some of the, the findings that we were, we were coming up with um, scientifically and to be able to re relate that to people, which uh, ultimately is what public health is about. And so uh, where this has kind of led is I, I've got an incredibly great team here at Biola and all of our labs were in LA County and LA County is absolutely uh, shut down. I mean, we're, we're opening up, but things have been pretty shut down. Um, I have a, a handful of research lines that shut down and haven't opened back up since March 12th of last year. And so we put our heads together. And we really jumped on this COVID thing. So it's been, it's been quite a ride. So I guess just to kind of kick things off, um, one of the things that I wanted to talk about was the actual transmission rates of, of COVID, specifically for asymptomatic and presymptomatic individuals. This, this has kind of been something that's a bit of a point of contention for a long period of time. It keeps kind of flip-flopping back and forth. And uh, I mean, there, there was a recent meta-analysis. Let me see if I can pull this up here. Um, there was one that was done in Wuhan, but mm -hmm. then there was, sorry, let me just see. There was one that was published in Nature, and I'm trying to see if I can pull up the, uh, the other one. But at any rate, it, it essentially was looking at the transmission rates and it found the, the, the secondary reinfection rate was extremely low, almost negligible in some cases. And I mean, you know, it, it seems like there's quite a bit of conflicting information uh, that's kind of being shared publicly. So I just wanted to get from, yeah. from your perspective, what does the literature actually say about transmission rates? And then we can kind of go into, you know, what that means a little bit down the road. It, yeah, yeah. So I think you kind of hit the nail on the head with the the concept of transmission rates. I mean, at first, we got we to gotta define what the difference is between asymptomatic and then pre-symptomatic. And essentially, what we're saying is, Asymptomatic is, is no symptoms whatsoever. Presymptomatic are maybe mild symptoms or there's a, there's a you know, that, that feeling that you get when you're starting to get sick. So we say presymptomatic, but you know, you're not quite there. Um, so there's multiple definitions I would say that are kind of being floated around. And I, I would say when it, come, when it gets out to the general public, the general public just kind of throws those in interchangeably. And that's one of the challenges I would say for uh, public health practitioners is defining what this is. The other thing too is, and, and I've read you know, a handful of, of those ones. I, I believe I've looked through that meta-analysis that you're talking about as well. Um, and 
the transmission rate, I would say, is, is one of those numbers that again we're still so new into this thing and i we can we can take we can take research and we can make it say a lot of different things not to say that there isn't any relevance to what the, what is being said but we have to be careful with taking that and taking a small bit of information and saying okay this is going to fit everybody on the globe because part of these transmission rates and part of how they're looking at these things, uh, some of the scrutiny has, has come in relation to methodological considerations. Because if you're doing a study like this, you're, you're looking at most likely there's demographics of a region. You're looking at people specifics. You're looking at population specifics. You're looking at you know, all of those very localized factors. And what we try and do in research is take that number and try and extrapolate it out. So. I, I would still say that, and and the numbers have bounced around a little bit, and that's that's where some of the challenges are. And you know, public health tries to get ahead of this by getting some of that information out. But I, I would I would caution readers when when you see these numbers thrown out. I mean, they, they've changed a lot, and so you want to you know err on the side of caution and say, okay, well, I'm going to do some homework on this, follow up, look at the literature, see what where this is coming from because a, a lot of where I have seen some of these presented outside of an academic setting have been kind of in the socialized world. And so, you know, from a, from a, from an academic standpoint, we usually take a step back and say, okay, well, yes, this is what it says. We will try and, you know, do with it, do what we can with it, but we need to look at, okay, so where was it? What, who were the subjects? How was this applied and what was the setting? And that's where I think the, the the general public may be getting a little bit of of confusion, or maybe even some lack of clarity on some of these things. For example, the um, uh, the number well, I guess R not the the R one or R not value that is is used to um, model some of this, basically utilized in public health as a a measure of suggesting that if the number is below one, that potentially the virus could sort of you know, um, take care of itself in essence, or peter out. But if it's over one, there is, you know, some leading toward uh, it, it keeping on proliferating. So, um, you know, those numbers get thrown around and sometimes it's like, well, well, this number, we have to rely on this 100%. We have to say, well, this is exactly this. Well, there's context. And I think that's where some of the challenge uh, with public health trying to convey information, you know, the details are, are important. And this is where I think this is some of the problem, so. Yeah, no, that definitely makes a lot of sense. And, and just kind of piggybacking on what you were saying, um, can you go into a little bit of detail when, when it comes to um, utilizing masks? Because mm -hmm. a lot of the research I've seen, and this is a discussion I've had, you know, just kind of in private. Um, I don't tend to post about these things too, too much, but uh, you know, even just a lot of the efficacy of, of masks, for instance, is, based off of uh, studies that have been done in like randomized control trials under medical settings, which is very, very different than free living scenarios where utilizing totally. masks in a, in a completely different setting. You're not totally. changing them always, you're, you're reusing them every time. So can you kind of explain or just kind of touch on some of the, some of the discrepancies between what we see in, in, in wearing masks in mm -hmm. free living scenarios versus some of the studies and what some of the dangers might be in terms of, um, even just like a, a false sense of security where you're wearing masks yep. and kind of getting sure. So just, you know, feel free to kind of go wherever you want with that. Yeah, this is a fun one. Um, 
So the challenge I would say, it, it, and you're spot on, is that when, when you take a highly controlled scenario, you have a highly controlled scenario, but we're talking about people who do not have the training to understand, I mean, typically, I mean, I'm talking very generalistically, if you're talking about the general population, you know, to ask them to be able to utilize some form of PPE, but not give them training to do so, or even the process of disposal, care, maintenance, all of those things. Uh, so I would say that, you know, in, in evaluating the literature, I mean, it does kind of go back and forth. I mean, there is some equivocality to what is being presented as of what I am aware of today. Now that can change, but again, the point being with, with these masks is, you know, there, there, there still is some questions about, okay, well, I mean, you hear early on that what's recommended is, well, you don't need to wear one because we need to keep the N95s for the medical professionals. Then it's, now you need to wear one face mask and then it, that changed. And then now it's two and you should really be working hard on making sure the fit is precise. And then you have a, a, another covering on top of that. So, you know, there is a message of, of trying to get a hold of this thing. But the other hand is there's a mismanagement of, of, of a, a message in going from one to the next and kind of going back and forth. And so, you know, it's a, it's a tough thing, I would say, for public health practitioners because they're trying to, and even, even in some of our early papers, we even suggested that um, in looking at the way that the United States approached the pandemic early on, we called the, we called the, the U.S. out for failure. I mean, that's one of the things that we had mentioned, but we, we had also recommended masks early on as part of the, the protocol. And one thing that we're reevaluating as a group is we never set an endpoint. And so I think now people are, it, it, I mean, it, it's different depending on where you go, but I, I just read today that the um, uh, state of Montana, among other states, have actually backed off on a statewide mask mandate. So one of the challenges I would say with, I mean, the equivocality of the literature not really going one way or the other. I mean, there's pluses and minuses on that have been presented both ways, but then the, the policy differences between state to state, I mean, that's, and even county to county. I'm in LA County and it looks a lot different here than it does in Riverside County versus Orange County or, um, you know, even another state like Florida. So there's, there's definitely some questions about that too. So Another thing that I often mention to people, and there's varying opinions, it, even within my research group on, on masks and whether or not we should be wearing N95s versus a single face covering or whatever. But the one topic that I bring up oftentimes that doesn't seem to get as much scrutiny is the fact that have we trained, have we trained the public to be able to don and doff PPE, right? That's the technical term for putting it on and taking it off in an appropriate manner. I mean, we have to go through, I mean, there's a long process of, of training and uh, I go through a process of uh, collaborative institutional training initiative. So there's, you go through biomedical and hazardous training and we get other sorts of PPE training. And you know, to have the public just do something that we are trained to do. I mean, you look at the medical professionals, I mean, there is protocol to how you use PPE. And so that is, has been a question of, okay, so is this, is this something that we're looking at? 
Um, I mean, you could go outside and watch how many times people fiddle with and touch their mask. I mean, every time I see that, I go contamination, 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 right? So, you know, there's, there's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of interesting things with this, but um, from what it appears, you know, it, it's another thing too about the timeline. I mean, how long is too long to, to have some sort of a, a public health intervention? And, and just to reiterate, I mean, we did say we, we were re recommending masks early on, but we never set a cut point. And others have, have, I think, tried to add to that to say, you know, we should have responded this way, but we didn't. And, you know, they've tried to add to the cut point of like, okay, this is when we need to start really reevaluating this entire policy. But, you know, what it, what it appears to be is that as these states start to relax, I think there is a, a level of, of frustration that is growing. And, you know, that's, that's partly our fault. And I would say that there's, there's, there's public health practitioners that are probably saying the same thing too, going, we messed up, you know, we, we didn't give a timeline, we didn't give, and it's hard to do, but, you know, when you ask the general public to do something and to adhere to a policy for these reasons, and then part of it is our mis mismanagement and our lack of um, keeping a consistent message, that's another thing that's that's added in some challenge too. And I think people are getting tired of it. I think people are just getting tired of, of having to wear these face coverings, especially now that the doubling down um, recommendation has come out. So it's messy. It's messy. But, um, you know, I'm still, I, I check the literature, you know, every other day to try and see if there's something new that's coming out. We have even toyed with the idea of trying to do something uh, a little bit more, uh, well, maybe not a little bit more controlled, probably a little bit less controlled and a little bit more like normalized society. So our research group is, is trying to see if we can put something together that looks a little bit more like we can, you know, um, attribute the data to a, a larger population. Yeah, I'd definitely be interested to see how that turns out. That, that it, it, it sounds like we're, a lot of the research that I've seen seems to lack a certain level of applicability in, in the yeah. same way that, you know, like a metabolic award study, they're like, see calories, calories in, calories out. And it's like, well, <laughs> yeah, that's not a surprise. But like, right. <laughs> you know, you know, in a metabolic ward. Um, so one, one thing that I also wanted to touch on was the, uh, how a lot of the statistics and the data is kind of being presented, mm -hmm. right? Like we're testing for cases, whereas we haven't necessarily done that before with the flu. And there seems right. to be a lot of contention among virologists and other you know, public health officials were like, whoa, 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 we shouldn't be doing this because it's not necessarily indicative of um, whether or not we actually have an issue, like the, the, mm -hmm. you know, the dangerousness of this virus. And then you see, you know, other stats like um, the, the 99.8 or whatever percent recovery rate. And mm -hmm. it seems to be these really conflicting things where we have all this data and it's like, you know, a, a lot of the... I'm not sure in, in the U.S., but in Canada, um, the flu, there, there's mm -hmm. like zero flu deaths this year, which just doesn't yeah. make any sense, right? right. And so it seems like there's a lot of tampering with data, whether intentional or unintentional, it doesn't really matter, but, well, it does matter, but you know what I mean. <laughs> um, right. To, to us, it doesn't necessarily matter. And so right. I was wondering if you'd be able to just kind of speak to that and um, maybe point out what you would like to see as far as like how to parse out the data and how to clarify some of this you know, jumbled mess of, of research and then to kind of, mm -hmm. you know, how we would share it to the public. 
Yeah, that's an incredible question. I I think the the challenge the challenge of the data right now, you know, the, I don't know if you're aware, but there's been a lot of either resignations or people have been, you know, I, for various reasons left their public health uh, office wherever that is. There's been, you know, uh, there's a list of people that are no longer in charge of these public health departments, and so. I think that's one piece. Another thing to consider too, and, and I, I had spoken with a, a colleague of mine who actually had background at CDC prior to coming here. And one thing she mentioned was, cause I asked her, I'm like, what's up with all these people? Why, why are they, are they leaving? Are they just, are they getting fired? What, what's going on? And so one of the challenges I would say too, is that there's been an, a, a history of underfunding or under preparing some of these public health departments which by the way as part of this they're the ones that collect the data now um i can't necessarily speak to the intentionality of some of these groups i because i don't know that but you know i look at the data and i go what's going on i mean there's certainly questions about you know why is it that we're not looking at the flu like we used to or you know the the question about the tests themselves and there's there's a, a handful of products that are out there in fact i'm i'm uh, advising a group uh, in this area on trying to find a cost effective test that they want and i mean they even do testing on campus and and so you know, early on in this thing, we had the nasopharyngeal test where they were doing the swabbing and then it was, they were shifting to another form of test. And I mean, so what we try to do in research, and, and again, this is coming from the physiologist, not, not the public health practitioner. You know, we always look at things a little bit more to the individual standpoint. Um, this is where I differ from my colleagues a little bit. I, I'm individual up, they're global and populations down. And so when we look at these things, you know, I, I typically say like, okay, so wait a minute, we're midstream and we're changing the test. That's a question. Like, you know, when you're in a research study, the test is a test and you keep that throughout, right? So could that be part of the discrepancy in the data? Perhaps. Could it be a change in policies? Um, I, I believe it was a couple of weeks ago the sampling rate for the PCR test was dropped down to a lo lower category. And, you know, when some of these things change, that's, that does have an impact on what happens with the data. So um, I, in fact, I looked up real quick prior to our meeting about some of the flu numbers and it, it doesn't sound like there's a really solid, at least from the couple of, of articles that I looked at, it doesn't really sound like there's a, a solid answer as to what the discrepancy is. So I can't really speak to that, but I, I, that's what the data say. I mean, the data show that there's very, very few flu deaths and all these COVID deaths. And so I think that's going to take some researchers to plug in and try and see what exactly might be explaining that. But again, you know, my thought is, is that you've got these public health agencies who are underfunded, understaffed, under-resourced to begin with, then we get hit with pandemic. And then all of a sudden now there's this, you know, secondary or, or down wave effect where these people are now being uh, fired, they lose a job. And, you know, they're the, probably the people that are maintaining the statistics for the region, which then go into the national numbers. So, so I, I don't really have a, a, a formalized answer other than what I can try and guess on that. But, um, 
you know, it, it is messy. It's a mess. And, you know, when we're talking about the recovery rates too, you don't hear that that as, as much, right? We don't talk about the recovery rates as much. And we actually are planning to do a uh, kind of a position stand piece. And so again, I'm coming from a field where a lot of the folks are in the prevention side of things and, you know, the exercises, medicine and nutritional intervention. I mean, so, you know, when we talk about a position, not a position stand, a call to action paper saying, Hey, we should be looking at this to try and help that situation. But as part of this, I, I do think that, um, you know, there, there really is a lot to consider with that data. And so, um, I don't know if that really helps a lot with that, but I mean, it, it really is multifactorial and it's kind of a mess. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely a little crazy, right? And I mean, <laughs> someone in your position would probably be a little bit of a nightmare, right? To, <laughs> yeah. Because um, there's just so many variables. <laughs> but I mean, personally, I'm I'm always a little bit skeptical when I just see these kind of dramatic changes where it's like, mm, you know, so yeah. even, even just numerically, right? Like mm-hmm. if something has a fairly high recovery rate, how could it possibly cause millions of deaths in, in Canada, you know? So when I hear question. that, I don't know, I, I guess like one, one of the big concerns that I have and that a lot of other people have here in Alberta is what mm-hmm. around the world, right? Is, is in this sense, it seems like the antidote is worse than the poison, right? We look at the massive economic crisis we put ourselves into. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the correlation between economic prosperity, recessions and, and mortality rate is- sure pretty hard to, to, to separate. Right. Yeah, so, totally. You know, and that that's obviously not something that you can really plan for in, in the right. sense, but um, what are your thoughts on some of the policies that maybe aren't necessarily uh, that you maybe necessarily don't agree with? I don't know if you feel comfortable talking about that. And then what are some policies that, that you really do think are, are good and that mm-hmm. you do agree with and just any sort of maybe recommendations or thoughts on, on current things, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, so initially when we, and we were one of the, we were the, one of the first papers in April of 2019 to come out and say, Hey, this thing might actually be aerosolized. So we should be thinking about doing something. And so we, we followed that up with a couple of papers and uh, a couple in particular, we, we did a, a couple of meta-analyses where we looked at um, the rates of death and we looked at who was dying and, you know, we, we came up with some numbers that are reflective of what's being shown today. And this is last year that essentially men over the age of now at bedtime was 65. Now that number has changed a little bit. Men over that age who are have, you know, one or more COVID comorbid conditions such as obesity. And so as part of that, one of our subsequent papers we came up with was looking at the United States and how the United States responded. And so we started comparing back to what happened in, in 1918. And so the, the thought with that is, and where we, where our stand was based off of what we understood at the time was that, you know, if something is, is that dramatic and it's spreading so rapidly, there is some benefit to shutting down for a period of time. Now, that again, as, as I mentioned earlier, earlier in our talk was, is something that we're going back on and say, not, not necessarily going back, but we're saying maybe we ought to put a, a, a end date on that. 
And so we're trying to figure out how we can approach that. But early on, and um, one of the, so early on in the pandemic, the, uh, the COVID-19 one, what we had suggested was early on, let's shut it down you know, for a short period of time, keep people more isolated, more quarantined for a, a period of time. And then, you know, start to relax from that point. But the point that's a that's a, a discrepancy and a challenge among many is, well, that's great if everybody does it, right? So it's great if everybody is unified in that process. And so public health wants to do kind of broad, widespread. Everybody shuts down for a period of time and you know, we we stick to those guidelines, but that's not what happened. I mean, and so people live their lives and they do different things. And, and there's that, that is where we came up with one of those challenges. And you can't control for that, especially when we're putting together a study and we're like, hey, this, this could be the thing that does it and works. Then you see what happens. And then it's like, okay, well, let's go back to the drawing board and rethink how that, that is. So, you know, I would have to say that, that one thing that's important is the messaging and that, that didn't work well in the United States. Other nations did a good job. Now, we compared against a couple of other countries. I believe it was, um, oh, I think we did Sweden and, and I'm losing track of the other one. Anyway, smaller island nation that we looked at as well too. Zealand? New Zealand, thank you. And so you've got a different situation over there. You've got a landlocked island and the population is the population within that landlocked island. And we're talking about the United States, which has a lot of international travel. Granted, we did slow that down um, or even shut uh, things down for a period of time. But I would, I would have to say that, you know, our group would probably still suggest that early on, you know, you have a, a, a very brief, define that though. I mean, we don't really have a timeline, a very brief window where things shut down, people kind of isolate a little bit, stick to, you know, let things kind of, you know, the, the goal of 15 days to slow the spread clearly didn't work. So, you know, what, what do we do with that now? As far as those policies, um, we now have to consider uh, that, and I'm working with some psychologists on this thing, and I'm no psychologist, but it, it's pretty evident when you walk out in public that something has changed, right? I mean, when you, when you, I try and do my daily activities and I try and, you know, go out into the public and I'm a social person and, um, you know, still do all of my errands and things like that. But, you know, you could just tell that it, it's, it's, it's had an impact on people. And, um, you know, one, the social isolation is, has been a target of some of some of the folks not a target but it's something that they are highlighting is this is a big thing this is something to to consider um granted at least the psychologists that i'm working with are are pretty strapped because they they can't spend the time doing the research on it because now they're practitioners and they're working with the mental health side of things that has has bubbled up now because of it so the mental health the loss of of jobs and you know, that does, a, that does a big thing on people. And um, I think we have to start considering those things as a, as a consequence of these public health policies and, and by in part other things as well too, but the policies do have an impact. And so I think public health needs to take a step back when, when we can kind of regroup and rethink some of these methodologies because the job loss is huge. And I don't have a number on unemployment rate, but 
Um, I come from a construction family, and so I understand what that line of work means. And if you're out of work, you know, and you don't get to work, that that that's pretty much your paycheck and food for the next couple of weeks. I mean, because a lot of that is living paycheck to paycheck, and that's that's hard on people. And so, I think we have to reconsider some of those things. The other thing to consider too, and I have a couple notes on this. So the isolation, the you know, I don't know if anybody's done any psychological studies on what it what it means for a society to constantly have masking. Um, I mean, I don't know of any studies that have looked at it from that that perspective. And so, um, you know, is that is that something that has an impact on on policy later on? I, I would say it should be considered. Um, but the other thing too is that we've got to think about you know, the, the next generation with kids. And there's some folks on, there's some folks on Twitter that I follow who are the doom and gloomers and they, they are pushing fear to the max. But then there's others that I follow on Twitter who have more of a balanced approach. Some that are pushing for opening the schools for the kids. And I mean, the data are pretty clear that kids are very, very low risk and, you know, getting these kids back to school, getting them into a a normalized circumstance where they can they can work toward their education is important. So the societal factors, the psychosocial factors, I think we need to rethink some of that as it relates to public health policy because you know we probably in early on and and I'm I'm trying to think for some of the public health experts who had to make some of these decisions. My thought is is that oh my gosh, we have to do something and let's just throw what we have at it and hope it sticks. And then we've been revising as we go. So I don't know. Does that help? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's definitely like, I feel like each one of these questions would require like a 10 hour lecture to really, <laughs> at least, there's a lot to unpack. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, one, one of the concerns that I definitely have is kind of the, the discord that's going on right now about, you know, between either side, right? Like, mm -hmm. Um, I have my opinions and like whenever I'm speaking about something, which mm -hmm. on my, on my fitness page, like on my professional page, I don't post anything about it. Yeah. I usually just will be like, Hey, you know, we need to do something about, um, you know, mental health and just, sure. you know, and, uh, and stuff like that. But, uh, anytime that I've spoken about something, I'll mm -hmm. always be like, there are certain public health policies that don't make sense. Yeah. And totally. then usually what's met with is that's met with like, well, you don't care about lives. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> you know? And, and so it's, it's like, if you're for lockdowns, you care about lives. And if you're mm -hmm. not for lockdowns and you don't care about lives, and it's obviously not that simple, right. there's be a pretty big divide between those two. Like even for instance, what you were saying about, um, you know, the children, because on the one mm -hmm. hand, as a parent, you might be like, well, I don't want to risk my kid, even if it is a small risk. Sure. And at the other side of things, the literature is real clear on socialization. If you're not socialized by the time you're five, totally. the likelihood of you ending up in prison is like exponentially higher. High. So, so totally. these are some very serious trade-offs, not just for children, but even like businesses hmm. is going into bankruptcy where it's like, that's not something you can ever come out of, you know? And, and right. um, what, what are some of your thoughts on how we could navigate just like as, as a whole, how we could navigate some of these conversations, you know, a with, with a little bit more understanding of, both sides. And it's not a matter of if you care about the economy, you don't care about lives. And if you care about, you know, lives and we need to shut down, it's, it's not necessarily this dichotomy. So how, how would you navigate those conversations? 
Totally. Yeah. I, I think the, the approach that I've tried to take again, because I, I, I wouldn't say I'm an outsider to public health, but public health wasn't my main background. And so um, it was an after the fact thing. And so my, my formalized training is not in, in that large scale application. So what I, I think the conversation oftentimes when I have these conversations is, hey, are you in a place where we can have a conversation about this? And are you, are you feeling like we can have a little bit of tough dialogue back and forth? Do you want to talk about some of these things? And, you know, I almost wonder if the, the challenge for both sides, and I, I always try to, to be able to navigate between both because, you know, everybody's opinion is valid. And I think we need to consider that there are other thoughts that, I mean, we all have our own thoughts and, and that's a good thing. <laughs> we need to be thinking critically on our own, no matter what. I mean, that's, that's an important thing that I always tell my students that, you know, you gotta, you gotta be able to think critically on your own feet. But I think that trying to have a measure of collegiality is important and having conversations with people that want to be collegial in that. I think there's coming to the table and saying, you know, we agree, let's find out what we can agree on and let's see how we can maybe fix some of the things that maybe you don't like, or maybe some of the things that I don't like. And I don't know if that's happening. Um, I know in my circles, I mean, when I talk to folks, you know, that are in the public health or, you know, in uh, the more basic or applied sciences, you know, I try to say, okay, so this is my perception. This is my, this is the way that I see it. And how do you view it? Like, what, what, what do you view it as? And I think my colleagues have been very understanding and very kind about those things that, you know, we can come to the table and have some of these conversations. But, you know, I, I don't know how do we generate that out in, out in the world today. That's kind of a hard thing. I mean, and so my hope is that we could get people in a room who have all different expertises and say, let's, let's talk, let's dissect what this looks like, you know, whatever the topic is and just say, let's, let's just pinpoint a couple things and start to say, well, what, what can we do better on that end? And getting past the, the, the thoughts of, okay, if, if this person is for lockdowns, are they, they're against this or whatever. I mean, it's, it's become a for against thing instead of a, you know what, I value this because, and this is important because, and if we could get these folks to come to the table and, and have a dialogue, maybe we could get ahead and, and make some policy changes that are going to impact and better everyone. <laughs> but I'm, I'm hopefully optimistic. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, that makes sense. And it's, it's funny too, cause like, whenever I talk to people about this, if you really do take the time to like have that conversation and like ask follow up yeah. questions, like when you say you think we should all be wearing masks, why mm. do you think that? And it's like, right. it's, it's not because wearing masks is so important. It's because they don't want anyone to get hurt and so on and so forth. And it's like, sure. I think that there's a lot more common ground than, than it appears a lot of the times. Sure. Um, but because these are like, it's pretty, difficult to know why someone has a, has a certain stance. Like for instance, yeah. um, my grandma is 98. Mm -hmm. right? She lives alone. She's self-sufficient. Um, realistically, she probably doesn't have that many years left. Mm -hmm. So isolation for her is probably not a good trade-off right. for, for spending the last couple of years of, of her life. Right. And so yeah. 
it's like, that's, you know, she is an at-risk population individual, mm -hmm. even though she's re reasonably healthy, like, yeah. you know, but at the same time, it's like, is that really how she wants to live the last couple of years of her life or the last couple of months or whatever it might be? And, and right. it's like, you wouldn't necessarily know that unless like, I have my grandma, I talk right. to her and, and she's yeah. like, yeah, I don't care. She's like, if it happens, it happens. But that's not necessarily something that's at the forefront. It's usually, we need to protect these people who are at risk. Right. And sometimes those people don't want to be protected. Sometimes they totally. do. Sometimes people who probably aren't really at the greatest risk of, of anything. Yeah. do want protection because they maybe don't necessarily have a, have a realistic understanding of, of their mm -hmm. actual risk. And, totally. and there, there's a lot of communication breakdown. And to be honest, social media is horrendous. <laughs> yeah. It's always like, you know, I'm reading these things where it's like, we, we have a hundred, oh, I can't remember what it is. Someone literally said every week there's 200,000 deaths in the U.S. from COVID. And I was like, that's literally impossible. Yeah. That's not possible. We have, you guys have 320 million. That means in like, yeah. in like yeah. what, a couple of years, everyone's dead. Like, what are you talking yeah. about? Right. So, so <laughs> there's so many things and there's not really any fact checking. And it's one of those things where totally you hear it. It aligns with whatever you believe. And then you're like, I'm running with that. I'm, I'm going with it. I'm dying, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. So it's, it's, it's definitely a tricky thing to navigate, but I, th I think you definitely hit the nail right on the head as, as far as like, just being like, Hey, like, do you, are you cool talking about this? Like where are you coming mm -hmm. from asking those follow-up questions? Um, one thing that I did want to talk about uh, a little bit more, I'm not sure if this is, you know, a, a little bit out of your scope or not. Sure. We're, you know, the, the relationship between social isolation and like um, substance abuse, suicide, totally. like that right now, I know I've heard some conflicting views on whether or not suicide rapes are actually going up. But I think my opinion is there's a little bit of a, a kind of a lag before you're going to see yeah. that, that data. Yeah. And what we usually see is kind of what we're seeing right now where we have this big influx of, um, you know, calls to suicide hotlines and, and things like that, where mm -hmm. that is indicative of, you know, something that's going to, to happen in the future. Um, so I, yeah. I just wanted to get your, your, your potential ideas on, on that situation. What are some of the things that we could potentially do um, as a public to, to kind of unburden some of these individuals? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, speaking with my colleagues that are, that are in the psychology side of things, um, they, they're saying that these things are happening because they're, they are working with patients now in their clinics uh, because like I said, now all these mental health things are happening. And again, that's not my area of expertise, but I can, I can vouch for my colleagues who are saying, yes, we are seeing these things are happening. Now, has it been reported on a wide scale? I, I would say it probably isn't as much in, in the lag time you're talking about is probably because they're so burdened right now. And, and I'm using the folks that I know and the little, the little data that I have looked into on this as kind of the guidepost on this but what they're saying is that we have so much we have so much that we're dealing with with all of these patients now that we're seeing for a whole host of different things but isolation is one of the biggest keys that they have they have highlighted as you know social isolation i mean um we're social people i mean we we need people and so when is too much too much when is when is that isolation point too great for some and um the addiction so some of the the drug and alcohol issues are definitely increasing i think we're going to still see numbers on that that's that's something that um 
I'm expecting that the numbers are going to increase based off of what I know and what I hear today. Uh, same thing with suicidality. I mean, it's it's certainly uh, it's something that we need to consider as public health. You know, what are the costs? Is is like you said, is the response doing more harm than good if we're seeing X, Y, Z, one, two, three. And unfortunately, I think time is, is going to have to progress a little bit before we actually see some of that manifest as a, as a collection of data points. But, you know, I, I definitely, it's been an important thing for me. I, I've got four kids. And so, I mean, we, we are very, very careful with them and, and, you know, we, we have close groups that, you know, are comfortable with being around together. So, you know, my kids have that social interaction because, you know, I, I see it in some of other people I know, some of their kids and being withdrawn. And, and, and again, I, this is only anecdotal from my own perception of things and from a few people. So, I mean, it's not extra, you know, you can't, you know, take this and say, this is, this is what it is, but you know, I, I think, I think we have to be careful about this. I mean, we have to think about what what can it be doing to these kids. And I saw a video early on in the pandemic. Actually, I would say probably in the summer of of you know uh, summer of 2019. Then, uh, yeah, I, I think that's when it was. A dad was talking about his son, and he said, you know, it, it, he's talking about how his son was this wonderful kid and. He, um, you know, he was working on his, he had these video games that he really loved to do. And then with the pandemic, you know, all of these things started to happen and change in his son. And then at the end, he's like, my son killed himself. And I'm like, as a dad, you know, you just can't, you know, those things are like hit you to the core. And so, you know, I, that's like seared in my memory, you know, now when I'm like, okay, how, how can I impact this? How can I connect people? How can I try and answer some of these questions? And so, and again, I'm no psychologist, but I know psychologists. So I'm like, let's, let's get together. Let's talk about some things. And so we actually uh, wrote a paper in 2020 on social isolation and patients who were dying during that time. And, and so right after we wrote that, we kind of were just identifying that that the, the process is not a good process. I mean, it, I get the, the thought process of the physicians behind it, like we need to just close them off, but you know, we have people that are dying and they don't get to be with their loved ones. And so we need to reconsider some of these things, think about the impacts of that. And so we're looking to follow that up on some of these other isolation pieces. But um, like I said, you know, my colleagues are, are, are in the clinic now and they're working with people who have a lot of stuff going on. So yeah, it's, it's certainly not as talked about as I, I would hope, but I don't know exactly what can explain that, but it's important. Are you familiar with any resources or anything like that, um, that maybe people can access online or something like that? Related to mental health? Related, or yeah, mental health, anything like that. You know, I, I, I could ask some of my colleagues. I, I don't, I mean, that's, that's not anywhere in my realm, but um, I could ask some of my, my colleagues and see if they have resources on that. And I, we could, we could follow up again on it. For sure. Okay, cool. Um, yeah. And what, one of the things as well, like as far as like the fallout from, from all of this, mm -hmm. that uh, 
that one of the things that I'm thinking about is definitely the the relationship of policing in, in communities, right? Sure. Um, I know not too long ago, I saw a video of a gym owner, like mm-hmm. people rushing out of the gym. I, in New York? You saw that? I yeah. think so. He was like maced and arrested and it's like mm-hmm. for, for opening up his gym. And it's like, on the one hand, I understand. But then on the other hand, once this stuff is over, people are going to be real mad. And there's a lot of like tension that's going to going to be had. And like, I, to be clear, I'm a hundred percent police. Like when people say defund yeah. the police, I right. do not agree with that. That is a bad idea. There's so much evidence to support that it's a, right. not a good idea. Yeah. So I am very pro police. I think that they have an incredibly important role, but I think they're mm-hmm. also in an incredibly difficult position. Oh yeah. Because totally. on one hand, there's a government mandate that's saying, Hey, we want you to, you know, arrest people and give them tickets and give them fines. And on the other hand, it's actually against the constitution. Mm-hmm. You know, like in Alberta here, there's, um, I can't remember exactly what it's called, but there's actually a law firm that's taking on every single ticket that's ever been issued and they're doing it for free oh. and they're all getting thrown out because it's unconstitutional mm-hmm. for ticketing people or arresting people for, for yep. social gatherings yep. um, or, or I, I don't know exactly all the tickets that are being issued, but it's, so right. it's, it's a really, it's a really tricky situation for them. And uh, I mean, a concern of mine is definitely like how people are going to be responding to the police after the fact, you know, because yeah. whether or not you were participating in that or not, I think all police are going to kind of be painted with the same brush. And, Perhaps, and yeah. hey, you know what? You're, you did this. You shut down businesses. You know, now I'm broke. I can't take care of my family. It's your fault. Mm-hmm. Um, have Has anyone in the, the, the public health, I guess, sector, sorry for me butchering terms. Around. No, you're good, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, have you heard anything about this or, or any sort of strategies to kind of manage some of the fallout between government, the mistrust, the police, any of that stuff in, in the community? In any of, of the conversations that I've had over the past year with, you know, as I mean, numerous people it hasn't come up once. And that, that is, a, is, is probably, oh yeah. I mean, it certainly should. It sure. Sh- it certainly should be something we talk about because you're absolutely right. I mean, and and I think this goes to the point of when when things become overreaching and it's too too much, too far. How much can people tolerate? You know, and knowing that there are constitutional guidelines that that you know law enforcement or other authorities are supposed to be abiding by. You know, what what's the? I mean, what's the point of too much is too much? And so, I, yeah, that would be another one where I would hope that, that, you know, the parties of law enforcement, whoever's in charge and public health officials could come to the table and say, hey, let's try something different next time. Or, you know, this worked, this didn't work. I, I, I don't know. Um, I do know uh, I have, I have uh, some very good family friends in some in L.A. County and some in, in Riverside County, and they're not enforcing stuff and sheriff or LAPD, and they're not enforcing things because of, of some of these litigation things that have happened that, you know, people are bringing their tickets and they're throwing them out. So, um, you know, that's one of those challenges where I think every region of the country, every state, every small town, I mean, it all looks different. It all looks different. And so, uh, 
yeah, the legality of it and, you know, is it, at what point is, has there been an overreach somehow? I think, you know, the, the, the courts are probably going to determine what that looks like, but, but you're absolutely right. I don't, I don't, I don't know of anybody who's talking about this and they should. All right. Yeah. Fair point. Um, so <laughs> sorry, these, these are just more, I guess, intellectually interesting topics. To no, it's great, man. Kind of chat about, but kind of getting back onto uh, something that's a little bit more specific to, to your area of expertise. Anyways, um, I wanted to talk about some of the like recycled drugs, some of the things that we've yeah. heard quite a bit about. Um, I know we've heard, everyone's heard about like hydroxychloroquine and mm -hmm. like ivermectin was one of them. And I'm sure yeah. there's a whole host of other ones. So uh, I know there's a lot of, I don't know enough about this stuff to determine which one is bullshit, which one is good <laughs> or, or under what right. context that each one of them works. Right. <laughs> So could you just kind of speak to either some of the, some of the drugs that are being recycled that are being used that are also having some efficacy and then also just those two, because those are probably the ones that are a little bit more prominent in, in the, the, the public space anyways. Yeah. So, so uh, hydroxychloroquine the azithromycin and zinc combo is being used and that probably uh, we've had discussions with a number of different um, infectious disease specialists that are actually treating and a lot use that. And I did some clinic time over the summer uh, and it, they were prescribing it to their patients uh, prophylactically, prophylactically, excuse me, and as a, a treatment modality. Uh, but there, there's also physicians who are doing a lot of other things as well too. I mean, there's a huge list. I looked up a list and I've got, I've got notes here on like 15 different drugs that range from some antivirals to some of the, the anti-inflammatories, some of the steroids that are being used to convalescent plasma to monoclonal antibodies. There's a lot that's going on, but interesting that uh, you mentioned ivermectin. Ivermectin, I don't know if you caught the, it was the Senate Judiciary Board, I believe. He went, went before, it was a physician who went before our Senate Judiciary Board and was basically pleading with them to, to consider looking at ivermectin. So I know that there's some very large, there's some very large um, clinical studies, clinical trials that are going on utilizing some of these things, but is it, is it universal? As far as what I am aware of, I don't know if there's any universal treatment that has been, um, has been put out there as this is the gold standard for what you should do. I do know that it appears in the literature that more um, physicians are working toward proning, having the patients in a prone position for better breathing um, and on the steroid. Now, again, that, de that depends on every hospital, every physician. They, I believe that they have, uh, you know, the, the authority to make those decisions, but it appears that there is some overlapping and some universality in some of those, those, um, some of those drugs and some of those treatments, but I, this changes often, right? So early on, hydroxychloroquine was not recommended. It wasn't, it wasn't one of those things that they said, no way. And in the United States, there was big backlash over that, but now more recently, it's kind of been backed off and now it's, it's not under the lens, the scrutiny lens that it was earlier on. Remdesivir was pushed early on or Regeneron and Regeneron, I haven't heard too much about lately. Uh, Regeneron, but remdesivir was actually not recommend. I mean, it seems like it kind of flip flops that based on, you know, 
how that information gets carried up forward. So, but there's a ton, there's a ton of different treatments that are out there, which is, which is pretty amazing, you know, to think about that we have these things. A couple of the ones that I, I actually wasn't aware of is that there are some physicians who are using um, Tamiflu and another, another one that's called Avigan, A-V-I-G-A-N. And I wasn't aware of those and I haven't read too many things about those as well, but um, even some gout medications, some physicians are using that as well. So, you know, I, I think it's, it speaks to the creativity of physicians to, to know their drug platforms, right? What do they have available? What can they use? And to be able to, to try and put those things into practice. I mean, if we have them and they're available and they're lower cost because we've had them for a long period of time, well, let's try it, right? If there's some efficacy to those things for other similar conditions, whether they be antiviral or something like that, um, I think that that's probably what what we're seeing now is in these recycled drugs. I even heard too some cancer drugs. Um, I believe this one here. I posted about it on Twitter. Came come from or coming from the uh, uh, NIH. Um, Lidadepsid, and I, I haven't heard of that drug before in the past, but um, but yeah, some some of these these cancer drugs are starting to be repurposed for some of of this as well. So. I, I think still the the information is forthcoming. I, I I couldn't I couldn't tell you one way or another at this point. You know this is the gold standard for for what is being done. But um, yeah, I mean the the infectious disease specialists that we have spoken with and other physicians that are in my network have said I have used this and this is what I've seen, and so that's what we have to work with. Awesome. And as far as the vaccines go. Mm -hmm. I know that's kind of a, a big point of contention as well. Um, first off, I was hoping that you could just kind of touch on the mRNA vaccine. And I know a lot of people are concerned that it can change your genetic composition. Right. And uh, I was wondering if you'd be able to just kind of like clear the air on that really quickly. As far as I'm aware of the methodology, um, the the, I don't want to say the lifespan, but mRNA does degrade fairly quickly, and I don't have a number on that. And so the technology itself is, is something that is fairly novel, but ultimately what is it, it's intended to do is, is to mimic what happens in a naturalized environment, right? We come in contact with the virus. The virus then attaches through those spike proteins, and in particular the ACE2 receptors in the um, in the, the linings of the throat and the nose, et cetera, but then also passes on those, the genetic information to be able to, to change the, the, the other cell, right? The host cells, which then become more viruses and it begins to propagate. And so um, outside of the technicality of it, as far as I'm aware, I, I've heard some of those things and the likely, I mean, to, to change your own DNA, um, you know, I, I don't, I can't speak to that. I, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't believe it. It does. I don't believe it does in how it's designed and what the processes are. Um, and I'm not a geneticist. So I think to, to speak to that would probably require somebody with a little bit more technical knowledge in that area. But as far as my working knowledge of that is that no, it, it, it doesn't do that. And part of the reason why they have to have these these freezers that go down to negative 80 is because the there it's very sensitive and it's the lifespan is very small. And so 
Um, I can I can totally understand the concern. I can totally understand the fears and and the uh, the nervousness about that. But I, I do not believe that 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 is how that mechanism would take place. So I, I've also heard about uh, other potential treatments that are coming along, like like some mm -hmm. of the ones you even mentioned that are fairly successful. So how would that impact the utilization of a vaccine? Like, is this something that you think that we would, that we might need a vaccine for like the flu and like some of the other things? Um, and just to be clear, I'm hundred percent pro vaccine <laughs> for like MMR and stuff like that. I think yeah. there's a bunch of ones that probably aren't necessary. Yeah. Those ones definitely. This one for me, again, you know, I'm a little skeptical. If, if we don't turn into zombies, then <laughs> maybe I'll change my mind. <laughs> no, I'm joking, obviously. But, but, but I, know, I know there have been some adverse effects. Like I know if you have, oh gosh, I wish I remembered what it was saying. If, if you have certain allergies, um, yeah. you have, there, there, there's a bit of a list of, of things. Cause yeah. my mom is a nurse and uh, okay. it's mandatory to take them where she's working, right? And uh -huh. so, she had kind of a list of these things and she has some of the issues on the, uh, on the list. And I can't remember yeah. exactly what they are off the top of my head, but right. um, that does sort of limit who can take them. And I know that yeah. some places were even talking about like restricting travel. If you didn't have that almost like, yeah. a, like a health passport or vaccine passport, but right. uh, are there, is, is this something that does require a vaccine or are there alternative methods that, that we might look at uh, for, for kind of dealing with this? Yeah, you know, I, I think you, you probably would get two different, well, there's probably multiple opinions, but in, in looking at the recovery rates and looking at some of the, the nuance that, that we're seeing with this, I mean, there's clearly people that want a vaccine for it. And so, but, you know, the, the, the question of does it need it, um, I don't know if I could speak to that um, in a way that would do it justice because, I mean, we, we'd have to define what is the, the need. I mean, I think that's going to be an individual factor that people have to decide for themselves. And, you know, does, I mean, some people need it. Some people absolutely want it. Others say, I don't want it. I want to, you know, go this route instead. So I'm more for the, you know, the leaving the option open. I mean, have it, have them available. If people want it, they can get it. If they don't want it, they, they don't have to get it. But I mean, I think we need, there's a lot of push on that right now. And I, I can see why, because we're, we're in a state where we need to have, we need to have rollout of this vaccine to be able to cover some of the circumstances that are having. I mean, we're still at a, at a point where it's like, okay, we need the assistance. We need to get it out there. Um, but I don't see as much on the, the treatment side. And that's, that's where I'm like, okay, well, we have these other tools and I see a vaccine as a tool as well, right? It's a, it's a tool, it's a resource. Let's, let's have it as in our arsenal, but let's not overlook the rest of our toolbox as well. So, yeah, I don't know if I could do that justice because there's going to be people who will disagree with me. There's going to be some people who are like, yeah, that makes sense. That's kind of a balanced approach. So, um, I would like to see more treatments. I would like to see a, a bigger emphasis on treatments, not to diminish the vaccine by any means. I mean, you know, there's, there's relevance and importance to both, but yeah, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. And one of the things that, uh, 
I'd love to get your input on is uh, obviously one of the big comorbidities for, for COVID is obesity. Yep. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to know about was if an individual is overweight or obese, mm-hmm. but they do begin, let's say, an exercise and nutrition regimen. Sure. Just doing that, how much of an impact could that potentially have on either reducing their risk of infection or probably more likely just increasing their risk of being able to bounce back from it? I would love to get a number on that. I, I, I mean, we've been, we've been batting that same idea around for a while saying, how can we do this? I mean, I don't have access to humans right now, (laughs) so I can't do any human studies. And so we're, we're trying to figure out, okay, can we try and look at this in an animal model and see if we could do something to try and answer that question? Uh, You know, as, 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 you know, going back to my practitioner self, working with patients who, well, one had cancer, but also there were a number of them who were obese. We would really work to try and decrease that obesity. You know, that's a, that's a big thing. So I would say a number of folks would probably concur that, you know, anything is better than nothing at this point, because we know the benefits of exercise. I mean, it's, it's widespread. And if obesity is one of the, the, the largest factors that's involved with this as being a, a risk factor. And, and I mean, it, it goes without saying there's a number of, of, I don't want to say partner risk factors, but there's a lot of other risk factors that tend to go together with obesity, right? I mean, if we're talking about perhaps metabolic syndrome or cardiovascular disease or, you know, history of atherosclerotic events or, you know, I mean, that's goes in the cardiovascular disease, but you, you get where I'm saying that there's a lot of these other things, chronic low grade inflammation. I mean, so I would say anything is better than nothing at this point to get people to drop their, that risk score in, and, you know, to be able to, to, to live a healthier life. I mean, it's only setting them up for something better. So um, in preparation, in the event that something does happen with the disease. Awesome. And so maybe, so, so gyms aren't open here. So people don't have access to a gym unless they have their own right. you know, in-home facility or equipment that, that they purchased uh, during, during the lockdown. I know a lot of people really struggle to do workouts at home. Mm -hmm. Um, I definitely do. (laughs) I do not like it. Likewise. (laughs) um, Would going for like a a decently long walk and maybe, you know, incorporating some, some hills and some different inclinations and things like that. um, Do you think that that would have any sort of like meaningful impact on, uh, on, on just general health markers for them? Cause I know, I I know it does have an impact on on health markers, but from the standpoint of, a recovery or prevention standpoint for, for COVID specifically? Yeah, I would say, you know, anything, anything can help. Uh, the more that people can, can get active and reduce some of those other risk factors, I think the better. And again, you know, probably going to have folks who will disagree with that and say, no, we have to have everybody isolated and locked down and, and keep to your own thing. But again, it, it's one of those things where we know what exercise does. We know the benefits of it and we know the risk factors. So, do what's, what's more, what has more weight, right? So what, what has more weight and personally, you know, on, on the side of the gyms, you know, I, I would opt for the gyms being open. I almost, I almost, I mean, and we have some gyms that are open. Um, 
I utilize the one that I have access to on campus. Nobody's goes in it, but um, I, I, for me, I have to exercise. Like it's, it's just one of those things like, you know, I've got to exercise, you know, and so trying to get people active, I don't think it's doing them. I mean, it's, it's a disservice for those that want to be active and want to exercise. But again, we have to kind of keep that in the context of what public health would say. So I think what's, what's happening is now, at least in Southern California, gyms are, they've moved everything outdoors. I mean, which what a, what a, an event, right. To take your, most of your gym, all of your weight equipment, all of your, you know, aerobic exercise equipment, move it outside, pay for a tent and then have people do things in the parking lot. So I think there's ways that they're trying to do this, but um, yeah, people need to be active. I mean, it's like we could do some benefit on the back end, right? We could, we could, we could be helping this thing on the back end by reducing some of those risk factors. So why aren't we using, again, that's another tool in our arsenal. So if we can do it safely and if we can do it within the guidelines, let's get people moving. Yeah, hundred percent. And even from a mental health standpoint, I know that, totally. what is it? I can't remember. This is something that I read a long time ago, but it was like, the top five non-pharmacological interventions for like depression, anxiety, PTSD, and things like that were like regular exercise, nutrition, having a job, um, having social interactions and having a relationship. Yeah. And and all of those things can be taken away right now, which, which ends up creating this weird um, sort of dangerous cocktail. I mean, like I have PTSD and I definitely know that if, if I don't have like really, brutal workouts that totally. I'm not the same person I can't function. So I'm, totally. I'm very lucky that I do have a gym, uh, access to like a garage gym that I go to, yep. um, which, which is, uh, which is super helpful. But totally. I know when I was, uh, in Ontario last year, it was, it was a different story. I, I was, uh, staying in Airbnb and I was kind of stuck sort of. <laughs> and so I had like a single resistance band and I'd have to, I'd go work out at like two in the morning. Cause everything was <laughs> yep. worked out like on a park at two in the morning. So there's like no one there. And I do some pull-ups and some dips yep. and things like that. Um, but uh, it was kind of wild because the whole time I'm like looking around, making sure that like cops aren't going to chase after me. <laughs> You're doing split squats. And I was like, this is a wild time, you know? Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah. I mean, there was, there was, I, when we first got locked down, I live in an area where um, they, there are, there's a 24 hour fitness nearby and they have outdoor equipment. I don't know exactly why. I mean, it's, it's, it's simple, right? Dip bars. They've got some balance beams. They've got, you know, a couple of benches for doing little things. And so I would go there. Cause I'm like, I have to do something like I got to be at, you know, moving. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's trying to be creative in, in this circumstance that, that, that isn't conducive for uh, some of these positive health benefits. So. Awesome. So we talked about a whole lot of different things. We kind of bounced around quite a bit. Um, I kind of wanted to just open it up to you to, if, if you wanted to, to kind of like talk about something that you think is, is really important or pertinent for people to kind of understand about the situation and about yeah. the direction that we're headed in. So, I mean, if, if you do have anything to share or say, um, I mean, take the mic. It's yours. Yeah. You know, one of the, the things that I've noticed too is that there's a couple talking heads on, on Twitter that are very negative, right? So there's some folks that are just fear, 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 fear. And I, I would say, you know, from, 
if I wasn't in this field, if I didn't, if, if I didn't have my nose in the data every single day for what I'm looking at, you know, I, I would see that being a challenge to me as a person, like, oh, I should be afraid. Like this person is saying, be afraid, be afraid. But I would say be cautious and and use use a level of of critical thought when reading through things or seeing things on social media. Go back to the original source. Try go back to the literature. But um, I've challenged some of these folks on Twitter. I'm like, you're, you're scaring people. Like fear fear works as a motivator for some people, but I, I don't think it's working anymore. And again, that's that's for the behavioral people, but. Um, what I have seen is that in the response from people to these, these very fear inducing comments, it's like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, what's, what do I need to do? But then these, I, I challenge these folks like, Hey, you got to give them some, something you have to give these people something to go off of instead of here's something to be afraid of. Give them five steps to, to improve their own circumstance, give them some information tell them to get in contact with these, these professionals, give them resources instead of just dumping on them, all of this, you know, fear inducing information. So I, I would, I would say, be careful what you read, be cautious about things that are coming across, even from, even from folks that you feel maybe respectable. Uh, it's, check everybody, check me, check my team, check everybody. I, you know, I, that's, that's something that I think as a consumer of information, we need to realize that, that as we consume, we need to put some checks and balances on things. And I always say that to, to, you know, my students, to, you know, people that I'm working with, to even people who read our papers and go, I don't agree with you. And that's great. That's fine. I, you know, and, and I'm happy for that, but go back and find the resources, find the information, go back to the literature and see if you can, if you can substantiate claims or refute them. And um, that's, that's pretty much um, been really helpful. I would say, you know, in talking with people in my community and at least, you know, my family or extended family or friends and student population as well as to say, you got to check it. You just got to follow up. Yeah. I think that's an excellent point, especially because of the, the frequency that we're probably seeing these messages. I mean, yeah, I, I specifically don't go on Facebook anymore because <laughs> it's just so negative. And I mean, the only people that I follow on uh, on Instagram are either powerlifters or right. scientists or doctors like yourself. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's a pretty limited scope of people. Totally. And uh, and it, even with that, sometimes like I get bombarded sometimes with with certain things. I'm just like, oh man, this is too much. Like I'm getting anxiety from looking at this. And right. you know, you don't realize it because. I mean, it's just so prevalent. It's everywhere. You're getting it from outside. You're getting it from the news at work, yeah. you know, your friends, your family. It's like, we're in this kind of constant state of crisis, which mm -hmm. definitely doesn't necessarily do anything positive for you. So right. um, I, I think that's a really great point that you brought up. Is, is there anything that um, any, any projects you're currently working on right now that you wanted to, to kind of share? Yeah. So some of the things that um, my lab in particular, I, I'm moving, I have a I've been moving more toward the immunological for the past couple of years. And so I've got a, I've got a couple things going on with one with our psychology department, but I, I also have looking at some biomarkers and that stuff's kind of been on hold um, in terms of those research lines. But um, a couple of things that we do have coming up related to COVID is one, the piece that I talked about, about um, having a call to action from the prevention side to say, you know, this, this voice is being, 
I don't want to say it's stifled. It's not stifled. It's just not there. It's to say, hey, we can do something else. Like this is another a resource that people can have. And it's something that public health and even the field of, of you know, wh- where I'm in, we say exercise, exercise, eat right, do all these things, prevention, prevention. And even public health is saying, hey, wave the flag, obesity is through the roof, cardiovascular disease through the roof. I mean, we're in we're in some dire predicaments in the United States and it's, it's, it's moving that way globally as well. So that's one piece that we're working on and that's, that's going to be multidisciplinary and um, folks from, you know, friends of mine and people that I've worked with over the past bunch of years uh, working on that to have a, a voice in it. Another thing too, is we're looking into viral load. So viral load is one of those other questions that have come up related to the transmissibility. And some of the papers on transmission do mention viral load, basically meaning that whatever the, the wherever SARS-CoV-2 or any of the variants are within, whatever, if it's, you know, um, I mean, we mentioned uh, fomates versus aerosols versus droplets. And so however it gets out there, however you come in contact with it, there is a level of viral load. And so we're trying to dive further into that as well. Uh, But my team, in fact, I I don't want to take any credit for their work. I I have jumped on board with some of the team here, but uh, I am part of a nanomedicine group. And so the team that I work with, uh, fantastic and way smarter than I am. And so they have a couple nanomachines and they're looking at how those, how those can actually um, disrupt cell walls and basically invade a cell. And these things are hit with a wavelength of light and the rotors on them spin about a million times a second and they'll just rupture cell walls. And if you had a drug, it helps for drug to get into the cell itself. So uh, they're looking at a couple of, of bacteria right now, but um, we're moving toward the next phases of trying to see how we can move into the viral. Um, what that has with this circumstance, I'm not entirely too sure. Um, but I also have a couple other projects, uh, ones that I'm kind of on the, the scientific advisory boards for and looking at a couple of cancer drugs. And again, some of these that, that haven't been brought to market yet, but um, recycling of a couple cancer drugs to, to bring them to market so that they can actually be utilized and tested in studies. So that's on kind of the, I would say it's not, it's not my forefront burner, but uh, it's definitely there. And then I've got a, a number of projects that <laughs> I've been in writing phase for the last Oh gosh, this last year, I mean, we, we wrote and wrote and wrote on this COVID stuff, but um, I've got a number of projects that I, that from like two years ago now that I've got to try and finish as well. So I keep busy. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. That's awesome. It sounds like you have some really exciting uh, things going on over there. So where, where can people find you? Where are you most active on social media? You know, Instagram is really good. I, I, I don't tend to interact a lot. Uh, I interact more on Twitter. And I can give you those links or if you want me to, to, to mention them to you, I know would it be easier just to mention them or to, you can mention them. And then I'll also put the links in the, uh, in in the description. So you can find me on ResearchGate. You can see some of the work that's been done. If you just look up Brent M. Peterson or Dr. Brent M. Peterson, uh, that's on there. Twitter, you can find me at Brent M. Peterson, PhD. I believe that's the handle. And then my inter- Instagram is Dr. Brent M. Peterson, and you should be able to find me there as well. I don't, I don't interact as much. I try and post things that are cool to me, but um, 
most of the time I, I just, I'm far, far too busy to, <laughs> to really have conversation through it, through social media. Um, but yeah, that, those are the best ways to find me. Awesome. So all that stuff is going to be linked up below. Definitely go make sure you, you give them a follow. And if you are familiar with research and reading it and statistics and kind of interpretation of it, then feel free to go ahead and check out his work. Um, he's got some really cool papers. So, you know, you'll probably get a kick out of that. Brent, thank you so much for jumping on, man. It, yeah, it was, thanks. Uh, it was a little tricky for, for me <laughs> because this is way out of my scope. So every question I was asking, I was like, I'm probably butchering this question, but uh, no, you did it, great, it's man. super interesting <laughs> hearing, uh, hearing everything you had to say about this. And it's, uh, I'm really excited to be able to bring this podcast out because this is something I think a lot of people really want to, to know a little bit more about. So thank you so much. Man. Awesome. And if anybody wants to ask questions, I'd be happy to answer emails. So um, I can give you that as well. Uh, my email is uh, Brent, B-R-E-N-T dot Peterson, P-E-T-E-R-S-O-N at Biola, B as in boy, I-O-L-A dot E-D-U. And I'm happy to help. So again, all that stuff is going to be linked up in the show notes, guys. Make sure you go check that out. Brent, again, thanks so much, man. Yeah, thank you.